Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out why Canada is in the midst of a paper shortage and why, like so many things, it was a long time coming, only accelerated by the pandemic. We continue with our series Code Blue, looking into the crisis in our healthcare system. And welcome former Federal Health Minister Dr. Jane Philpott to chat about what role private delivery of healthcare, always a thorny issue, can play in helping remedy the situation. But first, we head to Saskatchewan with a search for a man wanted in connection with the gruesome stabbing deaths of 10 people over the weekend continues. The horrific incident began early Sunday morning in the James Smith Cree First Nation north of Saskatoon. We hear about how the community is trying to cope with the grief and ongoing fear. And we speak to a criminal profiler about what could spark such an escalation in violence and why the manhunt is proving to be such a challenge. It was remarkable to wake up on Sunday to word of that horrific stabbing attack in Saskatchewan. It was hard at first to make sense. Normally on a Sunday on a long weekend, it's pretty quiet, as you know. But this was just one of those incidents that as you start to learn more about it, just became more and more horrifying in the details. Of course, the search for one of the accused in one of Canada's largest mass killings is about to enter a fourth day. Uh, Miles Sanderson is still out there. Tonight, as far as we know, it all began early Sunday morning around 5.40 a.m. local time. Local RCMP began to receive multiple calls from the James Smith Cree Nation. Now, that's about 200 kilometers uh, north of Saskatoon, about stabbings at different locations. Two brothers, 32-year-old Miles and 31-year-old Damien Sanderson, are suspected to have carried out a series of stabbings, uh, first in their community on the James Smith Cree Nation and then in the nearby village of Weldon. Damien was found dead on Monday near the crime scenes in his community. Miles, again, is still at large tonight. Today, police issued an emergency notice stating that Miles had been seen back in the community. It advised residents already fearful in the area to seek shelter. They surrounded a home, was later determined he's not in the community. And late today, Regina's police chief, Evan Bray, says the force believes Sanderson may may no longer be in that city either. So in many ways... It's back to square one. They do not know where he is this evening. Uh, Saskatchewan RCMP Commanding Officer Rhonda Blackmore is asking the public not to get complacent in their efforts to report possible sightings. She says that Sanderson has a lengthy criminal record and while he may be injured, he is considered armed and dangerous. As hours go by and as days go by here, I don't want people to become complacent that um, you know because we haven't seen any victims since the initial victims that uh, were um, reported and discovered on Sunday. We certainly don't want people to believe that there is no danger out there, that there's no threat. Well, as the search for Sanderson continues, families of the victims are remembering lives lost tonight, including 61-year-old Gloria Burns. Uh, She was with the First Nations crisis response team and was attending to a call when apparently the suspects entered the home. Her son said she tried to protect one of the other victims when she was killed. Here's her brother, Daryl Burns. My sister was a very caring person. She devoted her life to helping people. For her to go into a situation like this where she, she uh, helping people, even though it costed her life, that's what she was. That's who she was. Daryl Burns there speaking of his sister, Gloria Burns. Today, many First Nations leaders and other dignitaries, including Premier Scott Moe, were in Big River, uh, in the Big River First Nation for the unveiling of a new hockey complex. Uh, the Premier offered his support to everyone impacted during this horrific incident. 
those of you that have friends and family in the James Smith, uh, James Smith community or Weldon or are in, impacted in any way, please know that all of this province's heart is with you and your family uh, this weekend and in the weeks and months ahead, most certainly. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe there. The leaders of the James Smith Cree Nation have declared a state of emergency, which is expected to last through the end of the month. Well, joining me now with more on this is lawyer Eleanor Sunchild. She's owner of Sunchild Law, an Indigenous law firm in Saskatchewan and member of Thunderchild First Nation. Her daughters have ties to the James Smith First Nation, and she joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Good evening. Thank you. It's hard to put this into into words, really, isn't it? I mean, just the impact it must have had on this community today. I know you've been speaking to people there. Uh, I imagine it's just starting to settle in now, even though the fear is still there, I would imagine. Yeah, I think I, I have been talking to some some of the relatives over there, and it it's very heavy. You know, they're they're supporting each other and and working. Um, like nonstop, my heart goes out to all of them. My heart goes out to the family of that elder Gloria Burns. It's mm-hmm. just—it's so sad. You mentioned at one point that that when you look at who's been lost, so many of them were really important members of the community, older members of the community, you know, pillars. They, they were, yeah. There, there was there was elders who were lost, and and that lady that that you were speaking about was a. A NADAP worker I was reading, and she was there, you know, a pillar in the community. So it's a great loss for the, all of the community and the surrounding communities as well. You mentioned a bit about, about you'd heard from the community about a sense of helplessness. I was wondering what you meant by that. Well, I think that that's more, like, of course, they feel terrible about this, but in the overall uh Scheme. Like I think most communities feel helpless with with the with with the addictions. Um, I truly believe that that colonization and Indian residential schools played a big role in that. And you know, it, it's such an overwhelming problem on not just James Smith, but many First Nations across across Canada. You had now have. Um, <clears throat> widespread addictions and and unfortunately tragedy after tragedy yeah tell me a bit about just the fact i mean you know i don't think many people had heard of the james smith cree first nation before this weekend what is the what is the situation there and 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 the fact that the the violence came from within how, how do you how do you even begin to sort of help with that uh yeah i think you have to look at it with compassion and understanding, like it, it's really easy to blame and point the finger and say um, this was a really bad person, but we don't know his circumstances. Yes, what he did was terrible, but there there has to be a, an understanding of what the Indian residential school system did and how people uh, who have childhood trauma, like I don't know this individual's history at all i don't don't know his personal circumstances but i do know that there is a lot of trauma left over from colonization and indian residential schools and grief and it just keeps compounding and compounding and it seems like it's just overwhelming that's the comment about helplessness like how do you address you know a hundred years of hurt yeah 
And of course, addiction has been a problem in communities up and down the country, right? I mean, broadly, uh, the problems of addiction right now. How is that manifesting itself? I mean, it's really hard, obviously, to go from from trauma and, and, and addiction and alcohol, to, you know, any sort of form of addiction to something like this. I mean, it's it's hard, obviously, to make that that leap. But obviously, addiction is a, is an issue in communities right across the country. Are there the kinds of supports in place in communities like James Smith to deal with it? Uh, on a widespread basis, no. Uh, in no. in most indigenous communities, no, there needs to be uh, like not not only a focus on addictions, but a, a focus on um, like really the impacts of of Indian residential school, the impacts of colonization. Right. You have communities right. that are mm-hmm. are impoverished that don't have access to services that don't you know it's 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 a bad situation. And it's just going to get worse unless we we focus on healing these people, you know, helping our communities and and really looking at the root causes of of addiction. You're a lawyer, I know, and you've you've been doing this for a long time and you've you know, you've studied political science, at the U of A, as well as law. So I know, you know, all this stuff inside out. When one looks at the way the legal system worked here, and I know people will be talking about the fact that he was out on parole that perhaps he had a history of violence, that perhaps people will look at him as being, uh, at least uh, Miles Anderson, allegedly, as having been a bit of a ticking time bomb. Um, how do you look at the justice system and the way it works here in terms of that? Did, did the community deserve to be better protected against him, or is that completely off base? No, that's not off base, but the problem is not just that community. Like The problem is is when you have... You have inmates who have who have childhood trauma and you put them into jail where they don't get any help they don't get services and then they're let out again without services like there used to be uh, a focus on integrating them back in the community but that's been scaled back and that's the issue like there has to be more support when they're released and i don't know the situation i don't know his personal circumstances I don't know what happened, but I know generally, like, there's an over-incarceration, the jails are full of Indigenous people, over-incarceration of Indigenous people is a big problem, and so is a lack of services uh, in the jail and when they're released. I can't imagine what's going to lie ahead for this community, how, with all that you've talked about, you know, all the other issues that are there, now having to try to rebuild from this too. Uh, when you've spoken to people there, where do they, where do they even begin at this point, do you know? Yeah, it's really it's it's a really hard and sad situation. I think now they're they're trying to plan a number of funerals and logistically like how how are they going to plan, you know, nine or it would be about nine funerals. Mm-hmm. Um and in our in our ways like there needs to be a wake and and a funeral like it's a it's a ceremony in itself and going to be very difficult for them to plan plan that for all of the individuals who were killed it is it is incomprehensible it's just it's so heartbreaking i can imagine it and also just in terms of the fact that there's still someone out there and he's a member of the community and he's out there somewhere we don't know where the fear within the community and we heard it in reporting today um must be there too because we have no idea why this happened right no, there's I I have no idea. And, you know, I I'm not from James Smith. I haven't been there. Uh, 
since this happened, so I don't speak for the community, but no, of I have not. been talking to to some people there, and and yeah, there's there's some fear, and but mostly it's grief and just shock and trying to figure out how they can honor their loved ones when there's so many of them. Yeah. When you look at this within the context of all that's happened in the past year around residential schools and graves and reconciliation, for everyone out there, for, for the rest of the country, how to put this into perspective, like how to make sure that this, this is going to be a challenge to get it right, you know, to show the right amount of compassion, to talk about the person who's allegedly committed these crimes with the right amount of, con- with the right amount of condemnation, but also recognizing how it's seen within the community as well. You know, there's, there, it's going to be a test, I think. Do you think we're, how do you think everyone's doing so far? Our people are resilient. And sadly, you know, that that's not a term that I like to use, but it's true. Like we've been through tragedy after tragedy and the, the graves are, are just one part of it. We've known about the history of colonization for mm-hmm. a long time and, and what residential schools did to our people and, and all of this is fallout from that. It is. Yeah. It really is. So, and you know, our the, people, yeah. they'll, they'll recover. They'll, they'll get through it. And they have a lot of support. They have so much support from everybody. Yeah. You mentioned there was concern within the community and you as well about a backlash. What did you mean by that? What, what would that look like? And what would you like to see not done? Well, I, you know, I've seen some posts and some things from um, uh, basically racist rednecks who, like I seen a TikTok yesterday of of a, a man in Saskatchewan saying that Gerald Stanley was his hero and that people should shoot, shovel, and shut up. Uh, right. there's, a, there's a fear, like, towards Indigenous people, and that just comes from lack of education and racism. How should we look at this then? I mean, this is someone who's committed a horrific, he's you know, committed a violent, violent crime against defenseless people. How should we look at, at this person, especially if we if he's caught? If, well, I don't, I don't know his, as I said, I don't know his yeah, personal circumstances. I know you don't know his story, but in general, yeah. They, they must have been, they must have been bad. I'm not excusing his behavior at all, but but it, it it's so tragic and so terrible. There. It it's part of a wider uh, discussion that we have to have about how you use the word ticking time bomb. How yeah. did how did that happen, and what yeah. were the causes, and 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 where did it come from? Like that has to be looked at, and and I'm sure that it's connected to residential school. It's connected to a lack of services, probably when when uh, inmates are released from prison, like all, all sorts of things that just can't be looked at as a, a, you know, through a microscope. Yeah, because obviously the, the, the real mission here is to make sure it never happens again, right? Exactly. Eleanor Sachal, thank you so happen. much. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, it go could ahead. happen. It could happen in any other community because the issues are the same. There's poverty, there's addiction, there's trauma, there's, you know, all sorts of, of lack of services. And, yeah. and Viol- violence, too. I mean, let's be honest. It's violence as well within, within those situations, right? It's not uncommon. Right. It's not. But that's what was taught in the schools. Mm. It really was. Well, Eleanor's, yeah. and Eleanor's central. Go, no, go ahead, please. I sort of cut you off. Violent, like, 
colonial violence creates more violence. Lateral, this is like the ultimate form of lateral violence is, is murder. So, yeah. the, you know, we have to look at why, why is there so much violence in communities? It, it's not that Indigenous people are just prone to violence. No, it comes, it goes back to uh, trauma. It goes back to uh, intergenerational effects of Indian residential school and and addictions. That's just the way people cope with trauma. Eleanor Sunshine, thank you so much for for sharing uh, your thoughts with me tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, let's stay in Saskatchewan for this half hour and that ongoing manhunt there. The search for Miles Sanderson, 32-year-old Miles Sanderson, continues tonight. He's one of the suspects in a series of stabbings accused of killing uh, 10 people or believed to have killed 10 people alongside his brother, Damien, uh, on the James Smith Cree Nation in the town of Weldon over the weekend. Uh, Damien was found dead yesterday uh, in the James Smith Cree Nation community, uh, but Miles is still being sought tonight. Uh, RCMP commanding officer Rhonda Blackmore today in Saskatchewan says people need to report anything that looks out of the ordinary. We still believe that Miles Sanderson is a danger. He has demonstrated that he has um, no regard for human life and is willing to take human life. And so we want people to be alert and aware of that. Blackmore says they do not know where he is right now. Uh, police are following up on all leads, obviously. Regina's police chief, don't forget, there was a sighting or they believed he was in Regina over the weekend. The police chief there, Evan Bray, says at this point, they don't know where he is either. Early on Sunday, we had information that proved to be reliable that Miles Sanderson was in our community. And as a result, the Regina Police Service was assisting the RCMP in trying to locate him. Today, we've received information that is leading us to believe he may no longer be in this community. That is Regina's police chief there, Evan Bray. Well, earlier today, police believed Sanderson had been spotted back on the James Smith Cree First Nation. But it turned out he wasn't there. There was a hold in place put. People were asked to go into lockdown. Uh, But it turned out he wasn't there. Now, police have said little about Miles Sanderson, except that he has a significant criminal record. Um, His parole records recount almost two decades of crime, as well as drug and alcohol abuse. His most recent convictions were for assault, assault with a weapon, assaulting a police officer, uttering threats, mischief, and robbery. But a parole board of Canada decision dated February 1st of this year found that Sanderson would, quote, not present an undue risk, close quote, and that freeing him would, quote, contribute to the protection of society by facilitating his reintegration. Late today, the public safety minister, Marco Mendocino, announced that there will be an investigation into that decision to grant Sanderson parole back in February. Prime Minister Trudeau, meanwhile, was in Vancouver today. He says it's not the time to be examining the police reaction to the stabbing. Uh, He says his government will be offering support. The events that have happened over the past couple of days are horrific. People are traumatized. People are hurting. People are injured. People are devastated. Being there with whatever supports are needed right now in this moment of crisis is our focus course, uh, there are going to be many, many conversations about next steps and how we move forward. And yes, the federal government will be there for that. Well, joining me now with more on this is Jim Van Allen. He is a threat and risk assessment consultant with Investigative Solutions Network in Ontario and the former manager of the criminal profiling unit of the Ontario Provincial Police. He speaks to us tonight, though, from British Columbia. Thanks for your time. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. 
I guess just, yeah, we've never, we've really never seen anything quite like this, at least not in recent memory. Uh, possibly not with a knife crime, but uh, it's not unprecedented losses of life. And mm-hmm. it probably is the crime of the decade for Canada at the present anyways. Yeah. What, what I mean, you've done a lot of criminal profiling over the years. What leads to that sort of incredible escalation of behavior? Because we know he had a violent past. Uh, again, these are allegations, but we know that the suspect has had a, you know, a history of violence, but nothing like this. Uh, that's, that's a very important question. I always ask myself, why did this happen and why did it happen now? Uh, this is an individual who has a lengthy uh, record of uh, violence, uh, early onset uh, uh, risk factors from a childhood, which, which are all very significant. And um, uh, he's decided to, for some reason, act on this impulse now and has committed a crime that has uh, uh, cost 10 lives and 19 uh, serious injuries. And um, uh, it, it's, it's obviously uh, some type of conflict in his mind. There's a lot of anger. In my experience, when this level of violence comes to people's homes, it's a revenge-type uh, motive and uh, possibly connected to his previous record or some other conflict he perceives. Yeah, because that was one of the big questions here. This was carried out in his community, in a small community. He would have had to know, no doubt, would have had to be familiar with many of those first victims. Um, that does, as you mentioned, that does, that is this, you know, a stabbing attack in your community, made a lot of elderly people as well. Like this was, strikes me as being a very, and I'm not obviously not an expert in this, but strikes me as being a very personal kind of crime. Well, I think very personal, and the the anger and revenge is is the most personal type of aspect of a a crime like this. And we've got target apparently from what the media re- has released, targeted victims and then random victims. So it's obvious he has gone after particular individuals, and then there's probably people that were there, uh, uh, pr- perhaps tried to intervene in his crime. And uh, they were subjected to his violence as well. In your experience, is it odd for these sorts of crimes to be carried out by two people, as we suspect uh, was the case here? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, we've seen this uh, just a couple of years ago in the uh, two young males from B.C. Right. that mm-hmm. committed a lot of murders and uh, uh, went across on a crime spree, crime spree rather, and uh, were found in, I believe, Manitoba. Um, it's not unprecedented. Um, you know, they were, they were brothers that could have been acting in concert with each other. Uh, we don't know the circumstances. I'm sure the RCMP know a lot more information now based on, uh, interviews of surviving victims and or other witnesses that were there at the time. Um, the fact that he's still out there, I mean, and you, you mentioned the, the, the manhunt that took place for those two uh, men from Port Alberni who made it all the way to uh, to northern Manitoba. This is a difficult challenge for police, is it not, to try and find someone on that terrain? That's a huge challenge. It's a, it's a ex- extensive area. Uh, there's challenges in resources. Uh, right now, there's challenges in uh, verifiable information uh, of the suspect's uh, whereabouts. Um, it, it's the police now 
having to wait for this individual to make a mistake or to commit a crime that is going to facilitate his ongoing escape from being uh, apprehended. Uh, they're going to have to wait for this guy to steal a car, uh, do a break and enter, try and access a firearm, uh, home invasion, carjacking, some robbery, something of that nature. And then they're going to have to act quickly and attempt to verify it's uh, Sanderson or not. Jim, that sounds pretty, pretty, di- pretty dire. I mean, this man's obviously dangerous. We think he might be injured, but you obviously are pretty sure that he, at this point, uh, will be acting as of someone with very little to lose. Oh, this is as bad as it ever gets. He he has nothing to lose. Uh, the stakes are very, very high. He's uh, allegedly killed 10 people and attempted to kill others and injured others. Um, he didn't enjoy his previous federal incarceration. He absconded on his uh, parole conditions. Uh, he's been unlawfully at large since May of 2022. He doesn't want to go back in, and he will resist apprehension probably at any cost. So that obviously is a huge challenge. I mean, again, it's a huge challenge for police and trying to get people to stay alert as well. I mean, I imagine everyone is, but uh, it's a big place. He could be just about anywhere right now. With uh, the time that's elapsed, if he has a vehicle, he could be in B.C., he could be in Ontario, possibly Quebec, Uh it's it's all open right now, and they're going. Police across the country are going to have to look for um, uh, incidents, occurrences that might signify that uh, uh, Sanderson is involved and attempting to uh, escape uh, apprehension by the RCMP. Police are really going to have to come together and work as a team on this one, which they they regularly do. And uh, I, I, I think it's a well-coordinated investigation by the RCMP, and they're going to reach out and um, liaise with the public and liaise with their uh, law enforcement partners and try and get on this as quick as they can. It always feels like, and I know because there's, there's always an appetite to know more, it always feels like in these situations that, that you know, the police force in charge, in this case, the RCMP, much as it was with the case of the two men from Port Alberni, there were accusations that not enough information was getting out fast enough about who these people were, why it happened. Uh, is that a fair comment here, do you think? Um, the police are required to uh, protect information they have and to protect the integrity of their investigation uh, there's probably a nugget or two of information they could release, uh, but uh, that's not driven on public curiosity. It's not driven on media curiosity or uh, trying to uh, uh, broadcast all available information. Uh, it, it's, a, it's really a sensitive uh, balancing act of police uh, responsibility and uh, attempting to educate the public to uh, respond appropriately and help the police uh, bring this crime spree to an end. Have you noticed anything? I don't know how much you were listening to the police today, but have you noticed anything in the way they're talking about this that they believe that he's that he's injured somewhere, that he's not actually on the move? Uh, I, I don't. That's just speculation, but I got that sense listening to them today. 
It, it's totally speculative right now. Uh, right now, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, we've got um, apparently uh, verified sightings in Regina, which are now being walked back from. Uh, they're not sure he is still in Regina, if he was ever there. They've, they've had a recent sighting in uh, uh, James Smith Creation which was investigated and not found or, or not substantiated. So right now there is no substantiated information of where he is and the police have to be, and the public have to be vigilant for anything that might signal the presence of Sanderson uh, and report that via 911 so the police can attempt to respond as quickly as they can and at least uh, start the trail of the search anew and uh, hopefully uh, locate and apprehend him. Jim, one of the things that, that obviously we're learning more about his background, which I think we learned quite a bit about, about it early, uh, but about some of uh, his criminal background, and I know you're not with the National Parole Board, but people are going to be asking a lot of questions as to why it was found that he would be uh, would not present, quote, not present an undue risk and would, quote, contribute to the protection of society uh, by facilitating his reintegration if he was out early. And it's just one of those decisions that's, again, going to have a lot of people talking about why he was on the streets in the first place. Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question, Ben. Um, uh, clearly, this individual had come to what's called the statutory release portion of his sentence and after serving two-thirds of his sentence uh, he's eligible for release and they made the decision to release him um, frankly if I was doing a risk assessment on these circumstances I think that they're consistent with um, this individual being at risk to commit a, a serious and imminent offense that's likely to cause serious injury or death uh, he has a, a, a remarkable history of long-term risk factors going back to his childhood, being a, uh, a, a victim of uh, childhood neglect and violence. Uh, and, and that's very significant to an individual. Um, uh, very early onset, we've got yeah. 20 years of 59 convictions, uh, some very violent offending going on, substance abuse. Um, and, and the current offenses that are being looked at are, are, are top end serious. Yeah, I mean, I, I use the term, and I don't, I don't like using the term, but I use the term ticking time bomb when you look at it. Uh, that might be unfair. Again, these are allegations. He's a suspect. He's not been proven guilty of anything. Uh, but really, when you looked at his background, the escalation seemed, seemed pronounced. They're very pronounced. No, that's not to say that there's not several hundred or thousand individuals like that in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if the public thinks that isn't the case, they're wrong. Uh, so it is a challenge to manage these individuals in, in the public and try and reintegrate them to uh, the public. But they have to have a, a, a very viable plan for integration and support in their community. Um, and I don't know if that's there. That's one of those questions that will have to be asked and answered down the road. Yeah, we'll have to find out. Um, I guess in the in the near term, you mentioned it in the last uh, segment. You know, trying to pick up his trail again, and just the obvious concern that that something like apprehending him could be could be very difficult at this point in time, uh, because he has, as you were saying, you know, he has got nothing to lose. 
No, there's there's nothing to lose, really. Uh, he's made a commitment. He has this is very high stakes. Uh, the seriousness is indicated by the circumstances that the RCMP are investigating. Uh, he's on the run. He's been on the run since May of 2022. Uh, his uh, brother has been killed in one, uh, and we don't know the circumstances of that. Um, He's got a record of uh, uh, substance abuse. He's on the run. He's desperate. He's armed. And he's indicated he's prepared to use a weapon. Jim Van Allen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Let me take you back to the early days of the pandemic when we were all running out to buy toilet paper. It was a weird time. It was a weird time. There was a lot of strange psychological stuff going on back then, but certainly the rush to buy toilet paper was perhaps one of the most odd of those experiences. But it turns out there is, in fact, a shortage of paper in this country. It's the paper we use to make magazines, to print books, to make envelopes, printing paper, that kind of stuff. There's actually a shortage of it in this country. The most recent report that's been out was last week from a publication called The Logic on how a lack of number 10 windowed envelopes is causing no small amount of chaos at Toronto's city clerk's office since they are mandated to send out information by mail. And of course, they're not alone. The banks are supposed to do it too unless you opt out. So we're short. We're short of this stuff. Uh, But open up that envelope story and you'll find out there's actually a much broader issue surrounding paper shortages in this country. A story of shutting down domestic capacity. Does that sound familiar? Of transferring it overseas to places like China and Indonesia where it's cheaper. Does that sound familiar? Sending them raw supplies so they can send us the paper back. Does that sound familiar? And then, of course, we're left in short supply uh, when supply chain issues uh, and increased demand took over. So what exactly is going on? How can a country like Canada be short of paper? It seems almost ludicrous. Joining me now to explain is Sandy Donald. He's the publisher and editor of Print Can, Canada's foremost publication on the printing industry. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Now, this mightn't be something, I mean, it hasn't gotten a whole lot of coverage because I went looking to see if it had been covered a lot, but there is a paper shortage in this country and elsewhere right now. What's going on? Actually, it's a world paper shortage. Uh, the paper market, by and large, is sort of a world market. Uh, Canada doesn't actually, we don't produce as much paper as we used to. And the paper market itself, or the pulp and paper market itself, actually sorry, has different breakdowns. Uh, the stuff that would most affect the public is what's called fine papers or writing papers. It's sort of the higher grade if you want to call it papers, whether, you know, magazines printed on it, whether you get a direct mail thing, envelopes, all that sort of stuff, it fall all falls into the uh, fine papers market. Uh, as I said, Canada isn't as big a player in it as we used to be. Um, what's happened, this has sort of been something that's, um, it's taken about 10, 12 years for this sort of to sort of play itself out. Um, from about 2000 on for at least 10, 12 years, um, basically there was an oversupply of paper in the world market. A certain number of uh, paper mills shut down or they shut down older machines or they converted the machines to other uh, basically form of paper products, whether it was uh, corrugated or liner board for 
quite literally cartons, that sort of, um, you know, corrugated cartons, that sort of thing, um, or for other paper products, whether it was tissue or that sort of thing. Right. So the uh, world capacity for paper was reduced because quite literally they weren't making any money. Then we had the pandemic, which basically made things even worse. And then um, when the pandemic was over, it was like somebody hit the accelerator button. All of a sudden, you're playing something just wasn't enough paper. And um, Canada has been actually for fine papers. We've been a net importer for you know quite a while. That seems well, we, that seems. I mean, I think if you ask the average Canadian, "Do we make our own paper?" the answer would be, "Yeah, of course we do." Look at look look at how many look at look at look around you. That's that's interesting to know, Sandy. I had no idea. Because actually there was, um, like in Vancouver, there were a couple of paper mills in the British Columbia area that actually shut down, mm -hmm, um, whatnot. And you know, that happens right across Canada. Mm -hmm. we, we, we got a lot of our, um, I guess, sort of, I wouldn't call it surplus, but sort of the extra paper we needed, uh, we got that either from uh, Asia from like China or believe it or not, in particular, uh, Indonesia, right. or we got it from Europe. Well, when the economy picked back up, in particular China, um, all of a sudden the Chinese didn't even have enough paper for their own market, let alone to ship overseas. So that source kind of dried up. And then, as I think most people are aware, there were all sorts of supply chain problems that, you know, what used to take a month to get here all of a sudden was taking three, four months and whatnot. And for Europe, it was, again, the capacity in Europe was um, sort of reduced pretty dramatically. When things picked back up, all of a sudden there was all sorts of paper price increases coming through like almost on a monthly basis. And it, it quite literally it became um, getting a hold of the paper to print whatever it was, whether, you know, a book, in some cases, even magazines, all that sort of stuff became very difficult. Uh, as it, the, You know, there's the interesting thing, I gather Britney Spears was going to do a sort of tell-all book. Uh, Donald Trump was going to do a book. Quite literally, the books couldn't be published. Not that they couldn't find buyers for the books. They couldn't find the paper for the books. It's amazing. They're having to ration, ration, or at least yes. make choices with paper. Uh, you've touched on it already, but I guess what drew me to this story was this lack of envelopes, and that's obviously impacting all kinds of organizations such as banks, which still use you know mail. Um, but we're seeing a pretty broad we, impact here. Uh, where where the, are you seeing the impact, Sandy? Uh, the, well, like the for the. Um, Envelope manufacturers and whatnot, let's say they buy the uh, fine papers or the raw paper and whatnot. And yeah, they've had a problem getting enough to, in effect, you know, supply them. Um, as I said, this has happened, right? And we've actually, we've even seen some printing companies. Uh, what happened is when things picked back up, uh, especially on the higher volume users and people that were sort of buying paper by the rolls as opposed to sheet. They were put on allocation. Well, wow. some of the printers that like printed publications, they were put on allocation based on the volume that they bought during the bottom end of the uh, pandemic. Right. When things pack back, pick back up, 
if it, they didn't have the, even if they sold more, they didn't have the paper to print it, but they financially, in effect, uh, I one there was one, uh, they printed a lot of newspapers in um, Ontario outfit, uh, McLaren uh, printing and whatnot. They were, I think they were about 10, $11 million before the pandemic. During the pandemic, they went down to about 6 million, which isn't, wasn't sustainable for them. And then they got stuck at that sales after the uh, because they couldn't get the paper after the pandemic. Well, they, they basically couldn't afford to keep going for, forward, so the whole operation closed down. Wow. So, it, so, it, so this is, I mean, Sandy, how would the normal consu- how would the average consumer notice this? Do you think? Uh, so there's even been cases of more so in the states, but there have been cases like magazines quite literally haven't been able to print or they can't do as long a print run because they can't get the paper to print the magazine. So it's almost in some cases they've had to put their subscribers on an allocation. Okay, you get the magazine this month, but next month you don't get the magazine. Somebody else gets it. Um, it they was actually usually for um, – if you call it the book business and whatnot, which actually uh, books did, printed books did actually quite well during the pandemic. Indeed, right. Lots of, uh, lots of time on people's hands. But uh, like usually for you know, basically selling of books, Christmas is the big time. Well, this last year, there were a pile of uh, books that were going to be printed but the publishers quite literally couldn't find the paper to have the books printed. And the sort of the book manufacturing, the book printing business, um, basically it was more or less running on overtime. Everything, they, if it, they had no, really no capacity left, but to increase the capacity, everything like that, well, you need more paper. And they couldn't find that. It wasn't so good. They, they effectively, the book publishers went on, they were effectively on allocation. They had to decide, okay, you know, we got 15 titles we want to do, but we only got enough paper for 10 of them. So the other five, we're just going to have to sort of wait. Where, where this is going to sort itself out. Uh, Sandy, you were mentioning this before the break. How does this get sorted out? What what needs to happen now for this to stop? Because one presumes that when there's, where there's demand, supply will come eventually. Unfortunately, this is going to take a a bit of time to sort itself out because like paper mill, building a paper mill, you're talking of a couple of billion dollars. And if you go to build a new paper mill and whatnot, it takes years to, in effect, uh, to build it and to get everything online. So this is a problem that looks like it's going to persist for a while. Uh, The actual, if you call it the transportation end, that's sorting itself out. But uh, the capacity for uh, making paper, that's an area that has been dramatically reduced, and it's not going to be sorted out uh, anytime soon. Where do you see the impact of that then going forward? I mean, what may we see uh, when it comes to things like magazines and newspapers and books and envelopes and writing paper, printing paper, all the things that we as consumers often find to be quite plentiful in this country, one gets the impression that that mightn't be the case, at least, and the prices may go up, obviously. Oh, the, the price is definitely, as I said, for a lot of printers, and actually, because we go to the printing industry, we were sort of, we've been reporting price increases almost on a monthly basis. 
Um, I think in the last year, the uh, depending on the grade and everything like that, the price of paper has gone up by, oh, gads, 35, 50%, depending on what the grade is. And it, it doesn't look like those price, basically it looks like those price increases are still going to keep coming. Um, so we're, we're playing this up, but we have to work our way through a shortage, which will take time to work way through. It's not going to be, um, you know, fixed in uh, three, six months or anything like that. So there, there is going to be some things that, you know, they just, there isn't the paper available to print them. So that it, it's not going to happen. Um, what's happened is the larger printers, sort of the high volume uh, printers and whatnot, they're the ones that got put on allocation. They were ones that were sort of affected first and the most. And then it sort of worked its way down. The smaller printer, if you want to call it the uh, you know, printer around the corner and whatnot, they, uh, in most cases, they print on sort of uh, what's called sheet fed presses, that sort of thing. They've been affected, but not to the extent that the bigger players, there are, there are actually, there have been um, in the last uh, 30, 60 days, there's been sort of announcements of a number of catalogs that have been just, they're just continued because they can't find enough paper to print the catalogs. Uh, that's happened in the States, and but there are some catalogs in Canada that have uh, basically sort of been put on hold. Even some of the stuff like, you know, the direct mail flyers you get, you're probably going to see fewer of them because it's quite a bit more expensive to print them. But also it's, um, there isn't the paper available. Um, for some printers, it's quite literally, um, actually I know of a printer, they, uh, they're one of two, three printers in Canada that actually print comic books of all things. Right. The sales manager is spending 80 to 90% of his time trying to find the, uh, basically the paper to print the um, cartoon book or the uh, comic oh. books on. Because his thing is, he said, if I can find the paper, I can sell the job, but I got to find the paper first. And he's the sales manager for, which is, but, but that's yeah, just... You said you've been doing this for a long time. You know this industry really well. You must be a bit surprised that this has all turned out the way it, it has suddenly for Canada. Well, there was, uh, as the paper mills, you know, up to 2020, as machines are being either decommissioned or they were being uh, turned over other things and whatnot. At the time, I can remember, you know, concern of people in the industry is, you know, basically is this going to come back to bite us and that's exactly what's happened um there isn't uh canada still we we still export i believe a reasonable amount of pulp which is the primary uh ingredient that goes into making paper but the actual amount of paper that we're manufacturing here that's gone down very definitely in the last 20 years it's gone down dramatically we, we used to be a net exporter of you know fine papers or printing grade papers and whatnot we're not anymore and you know whether that's going to work out whether canada is going to become you know basically we're going to start putting in paper machines and paper mills and whatnot don't know at this stage in the game i'm not aware of any announcements 
of additional machines or additional mills going in in Canada at all. It is it is the height of irony, Sandy Donald. Thank you so much oh. for your insight on this and your expertise and your time tonight. I appreciate it. it thank you very much. It is indeed code blue. We continue our look into the crisis in our healthcare system each week for for five weeks in total. This is week number three. Last week, we spoke to the new president of the Canadian Medical Association. Today, we have another very distinguished guest I'm looking forward to speaking to. Tonight, the always thorny issue of what role private delivery of healthcare could play in helping ease the burden on the system as a whole with Canada's healthcare system in crisis. As described by many frontline workers these days, there is a renewed push by many, but we've heard it, of course, towards leaning on private facilities to ease some of the pressure on public hospitals. It is always controversial. Here are advocates on both sides of the argument from a recent Global News piece. The promise was that we would have a universal system where everyone was treated, but people are dying on wait lists. We've got the solutions of the public sector, but when people don't hear about them, if you don't know what's on the menu, you can't ask for it. But maybe the paradigm is wrong here. Maybe it isn't public versus private. The fact is, and I always have to be reminded of this, 30% of our health care is already paid for in what would be called private insurance and out-of-pocket payments. In Canada, 70% of healthcare is publicly paid for through your dollars, my dollars, taxpayers' dollars in general. Uh, The other 30%, you think about pharmaceuticals, you think about eye exams, you think about chiropractors, all that stuff, Um, physiotherapy, a lot of it is covered, it's not covered uh, by public health insurance. So we already have a bit of a hybrid system. Um, What's really this is about is about not providing two-tiered coverage, not allowing one group to have beneficial coverage over someone else because they can pay for it. Although in some ways that already exists too. So how much of a role could private delivery of healthcare make in this province? How much of a change could it make? Um, We thought we'd invite Dr. Jane Philpott to come help us out with this one. She, of course, is the Dean of Health Sciences and Director of the School of Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston and the former Federal Health Minister. Dr. Philpott, thank you for your time. Welcome to the show. Happy to be with you. So uh, just really out of curiosity, what do you make of, of the last of the crisis as we're calling it these days and, and what we're seeing in the healthcare system right now? Well, there's no question that this period of uh, emerging from the pandemic has been uh, an extremely challenging time. Uh, we still have significant uh, shortages of human resources. We've always been short uh, some health human resources, but that's been exacerbated by things like burnout and people leaving the profession. It's obviously made worse by the fact that we still have health professionals who are getting COVID or needing to isolate. So uh, I think it's put an enormous amount of stress on the front lines, lots and lots of backlog to deal with. So not a big surprise perhaps, but uh, we've certainly reached a point where uh, I am hearing from my colleagues, health professionals, uh, that this is, you know, the 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 worst they felt in terms of their level of optimism about uh, about health system recovery for for a very long time. Yeah, and that can't be a good thing because often we rely on the optimism of healthcare professionals to carry us through these these really tough times, right? Are you hearing any of the? I mean, I know it's tough, and there's no magic wand, but are you hearing anything along the lines of the kinds of ideas and solutions you'd be hoping to hear right now? 
Well, that's the good news is that there actually are some really good solutions. So uh, I think people tend to get wrapped up in despair and, you know, it's never getting better and nothing's improving. But in fact, there are some great solutions. We're hearing lots of talk about team-based care, which is absolutely a big piece of how we're going to do better. Um, That makes me happy because here at Queen's Health Sciences, we have uh, three schools, medicine, nursing, rehabilitation therapy. So we see healthcare as a team sport. Um, And uh, really part of the solution is making sure that people work to the best scope of practice and uh, that they, they, we delegate across that entire team. That's a big part of the solution that we haven't done as well as we could in the past. The other um, solution I'd love to share a little bit about is just a a new and improved focus on primary care or the first person that you're going to get care from. That's been a big challenge. I'm a family doctor myself. uh, And so I know that there's a real stress on the system, lots of um, challenges in people getting access to a family doctor. We here at Queens and in the Kingston and Frontenac, Lennox and Addington area are looking at uh, some potential new models for how we deliver primary care, uh, focusing on access, trying to offload hospitals, because we know for sure that countries and regions that have strong systems of primary care get the best health outcomes at the lowest cost in a way that's accessible and, and fair. What might that look like? Because I know, obviously, I'm out in Victoria. There's a huge family physician shortage here. Uh, I think this is a story we're hearing from many other places across the country. But what might a different approach look like? Um, and, and why is it cause for optimism, do you think? Well, you know, they always say that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. And so I think that there's an openness in people's minds about how this could be done differently. So we're looking here uh, at, at Queen's University in collaboration with partners, including the city of Kingston and our local hospitals, etc., at opening a, a new kind of uh, primary care clinic that is very much team-based, just in the way that I described. Because, you know, the old model of the family doctor that worked by themselves with a receptionist or a couple of docs and their receptionists is, is really a very outdated model, it's inefficient, and it doesn't provide the best access to care. So uh, one of the new uh, clinics that we hope to open in the coming months will be really highly integrated with the hospital and with specialists, but will be focused uh, on an interdisciplinary team so that a person would come and be part of this, what we're calling a health home, a primary care health home. And depending on what they're coming with, that would determine which health professional might see them. And so many Many times family doctors are doing things that a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, an occupational therapist, uh, or a dietitian might be actually better suited to be able to provide that care. We've done a bit of that across the country and certainly here in Ontario, but we haven't taken it to the to the level where that is the norm and where we find that there is a, a, a geographic commitment to making sure that everyone in our community has access to a health home like that. Because I gather one of the issues has always been, and you would know this obviously better than better than most, that it, it is sort of the fractured nature of the system because of the different patchwork of systems across the country. You talked about it when it came to, to um, digital health as well, that here's another system where we just don't know enough about about what's out there. You know, we probably know more about baseball hitters uh, than we do about our own healthcare system at times. Uh, I guess that also needs to be improved. 
It certainly needs to be improved. It's actually one of the things that we have done quite poorly in Canada, I would argue. Uh, now, thankfully, again, through the pandemic, there has been much greater emphasis on how can we get our house in order as it relates to health data and digital health. Um, there's been work on this in a pan-Canadian context. I've been particularly involved here in Ontario with something called the Ontario Health Data Council, and we've prepared uh, a report to go to the new health minister that talks about what an integrated person-centered uh, digital health system will look like, making sure that we have interoperability standards so that people don't have this tremendous frustration of having to repeat their story over and over again or get tests done over and over again, or the fact that people sometimes show up and there is missing information, which is actually quite dangerous when you think about it. So we absolutely have to do better. Hopefully our governments will put the pieces in place and make the necessary regulatory changes uh, to, to, to make that interoperability the norm as opposed to being an, uh, an, an option. It should be data sharing by default. And uh, I think that this is, again, the time when we're in a, in a crisis situation where every penny counts to be as efficient as we possibly can be uh, and to make sure that if you've got a test done in the system, that every future health professional, uh, if you give them uh, access to be able to, to look at your health record, should be able to see that ideally one person one health record is the way to go yeah why hasn't that been done just i mean it, it doesn't i know lots of places are playing catch up at this but i think there's a great example in, one of, in a report that you just wrote the forward for about estonia and how quickly they've moved obviously a smaller country um but why haven't we been a bit, a bit quicker to seize on the importance of, of data sharing and and streamlining that stuff well, there, there are a whole list of reasons why we might have ended up like this. As you said, you know, Estonia has not only the advantage of a smaller country, but it doesn't have the federated model of health that we have here, where we've got, uh, of course, the federal government and then uh, uh, then 13 other jurisdictions that have a role to play in health. So that has not necessarily helped us in this world. When we first sort of entered the world of digital health, and I remember, you know, 20 years ago when we were first starting to get elected electronic medical records in, in family medicine, we had a choice of 25 different vendors that we could go to. Um, some jurisdictions were much more directive in, in suggesting that there had to be certain options. And over that last 20 years, uh, governments have been increasingly more directive about defining the, the kinds of vendors that should be used. But we've never successfully been able to say, you cannot use uh, that a, a vendor or provider of electronic medical records unless it is compatible uh, between the family doctor's office uh, and the hospital, for example. And so I think we're going to need to have some strong political will to be able to put, put those kinds of requirements in place. This is, at the end of the day, often publicly funded uh, and, and supported. And so uh, it's certainly um, something that, that there should be much more control over. The, the public versus public versus private. See, I've done it all already by, by making it you know either or, just by the way I phrase that. The idea of private and public in this country is always a controversial one. It always comes up when we're in the midst of these crises. And yet there, there must be room for, for some delivery done differently, at least looking at things a bit differently. How do you see that whole debate evolving? 
Well, as you suggested, it, it's a complex debate, and it tends to be one of these sort of red herring issues that sends people off in an ideological direction that they don't even want to talk about it, and they have their ideas made up, when in fact, actually, very few people really understand uh, the context of what we're talking about. So, you know, public and private can refer to a number of different things, including who pays for the access to health care or who delivers the access to health care. And the reality is that we have all kinds of private pay in the system, and we also have all kinds of private delivery in the system. And then even within private, of course, in terms of the delivery, there can be private for-profit healthcare delivery, and there can be many uh, great models of private not-for-profit delivery. So what people get, I think, um, defensive about is the fact that we are very proud of our uh, Canada Health Act, which uh, I also agree is a fantastic act. It's uh, uh, perhaps could be improved on in a number of ways, but what we we have as a solid foundation of a Canadian value is that people should have access to care based on their medical need and not based on their ability to pay. Essentially, we don't believe that people should jump the queue because they have more funds available, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the queue that they're jumping might not be into a private care deliverer, even if it's a public funded. So the best example is many, many family doctors are private entities. Uh, and in fact, they are private for-profit entities because the doctor at the end of the day takes home an income from that. However, the uh, it can be privately delivered, but it is publicly funded. So if it's a medically necessary procedure or medically necessary visit to a doctor or to a hospital, that should be publicly paid for. And that's the part that people do get uh, anxious about having said that about uh, well about 70% of, uh, of healthcare in the country is publicly paid for about 30% is not it's privately paid for in part because the Canada Health Act doesn't cover a whole range of things including things like most dental care for example some parts of pharma- uh, pharmaceutical care uh, lots of other ancillary services like physiotherapy for example are often privately paid because they're not covered under the Canada Health Act so it's a more complex debate than most people realize, and I encourage people not to necessarily jump to conclusions. Uh, we need as much as possible to make sure people are getting care based on their medical need. Do you see a room? I mean, again, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we look to the South, right? We look to the States, and, and we see that as being what private healthcare looks like. And you're right, I was surprised once again to be reminded that 30% of our healthcare, whether it be pharmaceuticals, eye care, physiotherapy, and all those things, is private in this country. You have a lot of private delivery in this country uh, of healthcare. When, th- when this debate comes up again, though, and you see I, you know, people talking about innovative solutions and so on, is, is there fear at all of, of a creep here in terms of how much private healthcare we, we tolerate in this country? Do you think the Canada Health Act is clear, crystal clear enough that we're not going to see the kind of two-tier system that people worry about and you were describing? Well, I do think we need to rigidly support how the um, the extent to which the Canada Health Act is in place and make sure that again people get that access to care and that that it is not uh, people are not cared for based on who can pay. That's a fundamental tenant. But you're right; there are lots of pieces within the health system that aren't paid for uh, in, within public funds, and and there is inequity in those systems. You, there are some people who can get access to physiotherapy, and some people cannot for a whole bunch of reasons. That's unfair. It would be great if we had a, a broadening of the Canada Health Act in terms of the kinds of care and the locations of care that are covered uh, through public funds. 
But you're right. People do look to to the U.S. as an example. Um, and what the U.S. system shows us is that you can spend a lot of money per capita on healthcare and get really rotten results. And so that is not the country that we want to compare ourselves to. Uh, we do know, however, that even though uh, we're in better shape than the U.S., we are not necessarily the best healthcare system in the world. There are lots of other countries that pay less than we do per capita, but get better health outcomes for it. And so we need to be looking particularly to some European models uh, that do much better than how Canada is doing. Yeah, and, and there is, uh, I mean, we don't want to cherry pick from each of them because obviously the national circumstances are different in countries like the Netherlands or in Germany. Uh, but there are obviously ways that they function that we could look to in terms of trying to allow some uh, private, at least private delivery, not uh, not necessarily queue jumping. So there are all kinds of things that we can learn from other countries. Again, what I would really point to is who is really focused on primary care, who's focused on making sure that we move upstream as much as possible to invest in places, to, ways to keep people healthy. Uh, the biggest uh, spenders of our healthcare dollar are hospitals, physicians, and pharmaceuticals. Um, and we know that countries that can, that get the best bang for your buck have often much stronger systems of primary care, where, for example, uh, some countries have a guaranteed access to a family doctor, uh, which uh, is something that I think that we should and could aspire to here in Canada to say that when you move to, an, to a particular community, you know that you will have access uh, to a primary care home. Uh, it would take, again, an enormous amount of political will. I believe it's absolutely possible. And the more that you can deal with problems before they uh, get uh, more advanced or that you can do preventative care and screening of, of patients for particular conditions, the more affordable your health system is. Dr. Philpott, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. 